You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. Deepening Your Practice is recorded at the Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society in Los Angeles, California. For more information, visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So, welcome everybody. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening your practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class, and what that really means is that I don't offer basic meditation instruction, and I expect you already uh, to know that. That being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm just not going to include basic instruction. Um, we've been uh, talking about uh, the manu- Manual of Insight, the, the new translation of the Mahasi Manual of Insight, and uh, we're talking about uh, purification of mind. Purification of mind or mental purification, our translation of the Pali word uh, Siti Vasudhi. Siti Vasudhi. The preeminent element of Siti Vasudhi is Sitta or mind. When one cultivates strong concentration by means of tranquility or insight meditation, the mind is no longer distracted by thoughts and other hindrances. Uh, Such pure concentration continuously focused on an object of either tranquility or insight is considered mental purification. A mind associated with such concentration is also purified of hindrances due to the power of the concentration. There are three types of mental purification. There are three types of concentration that entail purification of mind, access or neighborhood concentration, absorption concentration, and momentary concentration. Access concentration. One develops access concentration by contemplating a conceptual object of meditation in order to block hindering thoughts. It is called access or neighborhood concentration because it nears absorption concentration. True access concentration can be aroused by contemplating a visual object such as a colored disc, a casino, the impurities of the body, mindfulness of the body, the in and out breaths, um, the four divine abodes, or immateriality. Contemplating the eight kinds of recollection, the perception of impurity, or the analysis of the four elements cannot arouse true concentration. Um, concentration aroused using three objects cannot be considered true excess concentration because it does not have the potential to lead to absorption concentration. It is nevertheless uh, typically referred to as access concentration because it produces similar results in terms of suppressing hindrances. So access concentration is the in some sense, the minimum level of concentration that you need in order to do either metta practice or to do insight practice, insight or loving-kindness practice. Um, I like to talk about these things in terms of specific goals that you can evaluate so that you have a sense of uh, whether or not you've achieved it or not. 
And so I would describe axis concentration as being able to count up and down to 10 on the out-breath only for a period of 10 minutes without losing count even once. Anybody think that they can do that here? So it is a question of uh, developing this, and it isn't a big hurdle, really. Um, I would say that if you did a breath counting practice for 10 minutes a day, uh, it would take about um, two or three months to develop that level of concentration. Doing it. In, in teaching, uh, for these years that I've been teaching, I've only had one student who couldn't do that. Um, axis concentration is able to distill the mind and then absorption concentration is more of a, a jhana practice any, any thoughts or questions about the axis concentration does that make sense these different things that they describe here a visual object, a casino or impurities of the body, mindfulness of the body in and out of the breath, the four divine abodes immateriality are all different objects that you could focus on the uh, in and out of the breath is one of the objects that I'm describing as the means of uh, developing access concentration and it's uh, I don't think it's any better or worse than any of the other ones it's just the one that I've, I was trained on when I was uh, uh, originally trying to do this and it's the one that has stuck with me I like working with the breath because as an object it's always available and uh, simple. Jordan, I have a question. Okay. Um, concentration on the specifically on breath is generally in my understanding held to be a pure concentration technique as opposed to an insight. These other te- these other objects here uh, of, of, uh, can be used to access, to get the access concentration like the divine bones or impurities or mindfulness of the body. These are more insight types. So I, I said, this kind of hints at some of the issues I raised in the email with you about trying to understand the relationship between access concentration, which takes you to the jhanas, which are a concentration technique, via an insight technique. Well, it would depend on how you're doing the technique. Are you doing it as an insight practice or are you doing it solely to develop concentration? I think that would be the distinction. Well, I don't know. Shinsen would say you get the concentration with no matter what, that the insight practice is enough to generate whatever level of concentration you need. He would, and he teaches a dry uh, insight practice. So Mahasi is describing here what we would call a wet insight practice where you develop the concentration first. And I think that that, that this is actually the difference between a retreat teacher and somebody who teaches uh, in a meditation center uh, where people are not often going on retreat. Who goes on at least one retreat a year here? So what's that about half of the people? And then who goes on two retreats a year? So then we're down to a quarter of the people. And who goes on three retreats a year? And so we're still in that 20%. Um, If you go on retreat and you sit a week-long retreat and you do the eight hours of practice a day, you're likely to generate the 
access level concentration enough to do your technique without needing anything else. But if you don't do that, it's, it's unlikely that I think just doing an insight practice as a householder who doesn't go on a lot of retreats, you will develop uh, enough concentration to be able to do your insight practice. What I noticed when I started teaching here, the, 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 just the most basic insight practices that were dead simple for me to do, nobody could do because they didn't have access level concentration. And so that's when I began to teach the breath counting here. Because uh, I, if you can't uh, hold your attention long enough on the object of meditation, the insights don't arise. And if you're sitting for short periods of time, uh, you know, uh, how long do you sit? Uh, who sits for an hour? So a small number. Who sits for 45 minutes? So a bigger number. Who sits for a half an hour? Who's, so who sits for 20 minutes? If you sit for an hour, you're also sitting for 20 minutes. So I'm trying to reach the point where everybody is raising their hand. I know what the lowest common denominator is. Who sits for 10 minutes? Is that getting everybody up? So, so in the 10 or 15 minute range of trying to do insight practice, uh, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to develop enough concentration actually to get much insight out of the practice. So you may find a, a sense of frustration or you may come to believe that actually insight practice doesn't do that much, doesn't really produce that much because you're not actually able to hold the object of meditation well enough for the insight to arise from it. Um, even doing something basic like 10 minutes of concentration practice three times a week over a period of two or three months, you'll develop a sufficient level of concentration that then you can move into the insight practice and that will um, actually begin to bear the fruit of insight practice that you wouldn't have been able to get to otherwise. What is the Matter and mindfulness, you can have insight and concentration practices both in trying to do those techniques. I don't, I don't understand. I know meta, I know mindfulness. I don't know whether I'm doing concentration. Or Again, it's how you do the technique. Whether, whether or not your focus is on insight or on developing metta or on developing concentration. Uh, I teach here a concentration-based metta practice and uh, the purpose of that is to develop a strong enough ability to concentrate in metta that you can use it as a refuge. Uh, one of the things about the insight practice is it can be dysregulating, it can be disturbing depending on how defended you are against your own conditioning. Uh, some of us don't really like to have a, a, an experience, an authentic experience of ourselves, and so we mask that and we present an inauthentic way of being in the world. Then mindfulness or insight meditation is very good at cutting through that. But then you have to have the experience of actually how you are and if that is troubling to you, it can be quite disturbing if that's making sense. 
So you get bent out of shape doing the insight practice, and if you don't have a place to come to, to withdraw from that, to recollect and come back into balance, it can make you very timid about going and doing much insight practice. But if you have a place that you can withdraw to, that you can actually feel safe and secure in, and allow the, the body-mind to rebalance in that place of safety, it actually makes you pretty fearless in terms of uh, being willing to do your insight practice. So that this, this integrated metta vipassana, for me, has been incredibly useful in that. A highly concentrated metta state where you're in a place, a conscious experience of kindness and peace, even though the, the, the body-mind is, is in a state of disruption allows time for the body-mind to come back into balance and then you can come out of the metta and go back into the insight practice. Mm-hmm. So what, if you're doing metta and you're constantly repeating three or four qualities that you would have, that you would like to have for yourself, towards yourself, is that concentration or so insight. Because I'm thinking insight is more like mindfulness, just free flowing, watching your thoughts, not giving a tax score. Correct. Okay, and concentration is like counting your breaths, like you suggested, or correct. Um, saying three or four words over and over again. Right. As, as mentioned, is that concentration? It is. So metta, though, can be done as a wet or dry practice as well as vipassana can be done as a wet or dry practice. It's just we're referring to a different wetness in this. <laughs> well, the, meta, the metta thing is interesting on a directive because you know, it's my understanding that traditionally concentration as a tranquility technique was the offset to insight, heating up. Right. So if you had a balance between a more pure concentration technique, but to get breath counting, pure breath counting, not, not decomposing the breath, but really just focusing on the breath as breath. That's the tranquility offset to insight practices getting overheated, as, as you right. said. So when you combine what you're doing is taking the meta and focusing on the, on the mind state as an object of concentration, it's sort of like a double whammy. You're getting the tranquility of right. concentration along with the kind of uh, calmness that comes from the metaphors, which right. is an interesting, unique blend. And out of the various options you could pick, because it wouldn't have to, as you said before, it wouldn't have to be metaphors. It could right. be loving kindness, it could be sympathetic joy, it could be yeah, totally. standing, any number of them, right? Which is, which is what Mahasi is saying in yeah. this, in terms of developing. Access. Is that making sense to everybody, what, what, what's being said? Um, in some sense, it's, if you'll forgive the metaphrase of killing two birds with one stone. <laughs> You're developing concentration and metta as an offset to the, the heating up of, of Vipassana, which makes you a totally fearless insight practitioner because you know whatever trouble you get into... Uh, you can withdraw safely and, and ride it out um, and then emerge again and go right back into the insight practice. I find Maybe it. Maybe not right. <laughs> <laughs> Depends. Uh, yeah, how much of a daredevil you are, right? So.
So, uh huh. Could you maybe define what you mean by wet? Like I know wet meta. Yeah, or well, I know in meta practice, um, like dry meta practices, you're saying the phrases when you don't necessarily mean them, sort of in the hopes that you get there and then you are feeling it. So in wet metta, the purpose of the meditation is to generate the feeling of loving kindness in the body. So it's an embodied approach to the practice. The danger with wet metta is that you're not in true metta, but you're in sentimentality. Okay. Uh, so you're generating a re- repetition of phrase or a repetition of story that is intended to generate a feeling of loving kindness in the body. Uh, true metta is the experience of the present moment in that feeling and sentimentality would be caught up in the thought that's generating the feeling in the body. Is that distinction clear? Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> no. <laughs> <laughs> could, could you um, describe a little more the, um, at least in your own words, the difference um, sentimentality and loving kindness so metta, true metta is in the present moment uh-huh. and sentimentality is in the thought that generates the feeling so rather than you lose awareness of the present moment and get caught up in thinking mm-hmm. and then you're in the storyline that's generating the metta that would be sentimentality, the near enemy like a nostalgia. Right. Yeah, okay. So you're in a tearjerker rather than in the present moment. Right. Wet metta, though, is designed for the feeling in the body. Dry metta is a concentration-oriented uh, meditation. So the, the focus is not in the body, but it's in the mind state. So dry metta, the object of meditation, is the mind state of metta, the filter, the that part of it. And wet metta is focused in the body, looking at the emotional experience of, um, of the felt sense of loving kindness in the body. The problem with wet metta is that it's almost always based on the generation of a thought. So in some sense, it's a self-generated emotional experience, which would take you out of the present moment into the thought itself. And then you would not be in true metta you would be in thinking. Is that making sense now? In a concentration-oriented metta, where the, the dry metta, where your focus is on the mind state of metta, you're absolutely in the experience of the present moment. And uh, the experience of the present moment is filtered through the mind state of loving-kindness. So you're in the present moment, in the experience of loving-kindness, rather than the potential of being caught up in the thought that generates a facsimile of that experience. Um, so do we also do we all sort of start out dry, and then you kind of move into wet, or it's not even necessary. No, I would say that? that most of the instruction you're going to receive in metta in our culture is going to be wet metta. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're going to be intentionally generating a thought that produces a feeling of loving kindness. Right. And if you could be in the present moment in the experience of that, then you would be in true metta. But what often happens is it's so easy to drift into the thought that's generating 
that you're no longer in the present moment in the experience of metta. You're caught up in the sentimental thinking process. With the dry metta practice, since the body is not included as the object of meditation, it's much harder to get pulled into sentimentality. Um, and then you can go into metta jhana, these deeply concentrated states uh, that are uh, incredibly blissful. So that the, the experience of bliss in the body is not generated by thinking, it's generated by being concentrated. And, and, and it's, a much, uh, it's a much more intense experience if you can get into, say, the, the third metta jhana is incredibly blissful and uh, almost unceasingly blissful, whereas the, the, um, the, the experience of loving-kindness that's generated by the repetition of phrases and thought that uh, is, is only blissful to the extent that you can generate it uh, intentionally. And now, isn't dry metta also the repetition of these same phrases? The, in dry metta, the object of meditation is the mind state of metta, and the phrases are secondary, and the intention of the metta is secondary. Okay. You're really narrowly focused just on the mind state. Um, so, f- you know, first off, you have to be able to d- distinguish the mind state of metta from all of the other mind states that you might notice. Once you have an awareness of what a mind state of metta is like, it's as it's, it's perfectly obvious as the mind state of anger is. Uh, and you know whether it's there or not, and then you can develop uh, strategies for bringing it to mind. Uh, in, in developing dry metta, for instance, it's useful to do an inventory of people that you know because you, you need to do the practice for one person intentionally. But some people, when you bring them to mind, they bring with them the mind state of metta. And some people, when you bring them to mind, they bring a complex relationship that has kindness and anger or lust or longing or all sorts of different experiences, disappointment. Um, And so you look for these very simple relationships where just the thought of the person brings the mind into kindness. And then you perpetuate that that mind state of kindness and narrowly focus on it. So it's a tiny object, so it's easy to become highly concentrated on it. So you go into absorption in the mind state of metta the same way that you would in uh, 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 on the breath or some other uh, way of going into a jhana or absorption, but because you've chosen the object of metta, it also has the capacity of enhancing your your capacity for metta, which is the two-in-one piece. Okay. And so when we talk about dry and wet, we're only talking about metta practice. Well, dry and wet also applies to vipassana practice, okay. but it's but it, the wetness is different. That's what I was saying. Okay. So in wet and dry uh, vipassana, uh, you're talking about whether there's a separate concentration practice or there isn't a separate concentration practice. So in dry vipassana, there's no intentional focus on developing excess concentration. You simply do the insight practice with no attendant uh, effort at developing concentration. In a wet uh, vipassana practice, there's a period of intentional generation of concentration before you go into the uh, insight part. 
So if you, if you, for instance, if you call into morning meditation on the concentration and insight, there's a period of 10 minutes of concentrating the mind and then you go into the insight practice. So that's a wet vipassana. So a dry vipassana would, would, would be to uh, uh, basically not do concentration right. before. You just go straight into the insight technique. How is everybody doing with this? Is it is it too technical, or are you 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 staying with us? This is for non-technical. Would a wet meta practice be? Could it be loosely termed faking it until you make it? <laughs> Fake it till you make it. No, it, uh, the wet meta it can be useful. It's the near enemy of of meta when you practice that way is sentimentality. The near enemy is called the near enemy because it's easy to confuse the the two states. So you could do wet metta and be in true metta, and that would be a fine way to practice. But what I notice in, 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 in uh, my teaching practice is that most of the people that I encounter that are doing that practice are actually not in metta, they're in sentimentality. And they can't distinguish the difference between it. So that the mind is generating a feeling of loving-kindness but they're not in the experience of that, they're in the story that's generating it. With, with the dry metta, uh, it's much harder to get s- caught into the sen- sentimentality because there, there isn't that intentional generation of an emotion. If the emotion arises in the body, it's not an object of meditation, so you just let it go on in the background. So it has less gripping power to pull you into it. And then if you can get into jhana while you're doing uh, dry metta, you end up in sukha, which is bliss, which is much more intense than almost any self-generated emotion that you can do. So that you, you, have the, you don't miss out on that, that emotional component that comes from wet metta, and actually the experience is much more intense if, uh, in terms of that. Then in that case... It- Bliss is also felt in the body. Yeah, the whole body, really. I see. I see. So, um, you know, jhana is five aspects. The first jhana is uh, uh, vitaka, which is is it vitaka or vikara? I can't remember at the moment. Um, vitaka is where you place your attention. The Pali word for placing your attention. These are the five qualities that are, make up the experience of the first jhana. This would be absorption, concentration. You place your attention on the object of meditation. So uh, you would place your attention, if you were doing metta uh, practice, on the mind state of metta. You would sustain it, that's vikara. So you place and sustain your attention. Then you wait for piti to arise. Piti is o- often translated as rapture, but... Mostly I notice it as an energy in the body, a vibrating energy in the body. The, there's a kind of emotional response to the vibrating energy in the body, which is called sukha. Sukha is kind of the opposite of dukkha, and that's often translated as bliss. So it's an intensely pleasant experience that arises in uh, reaction to the piti in the body. And then you come into ekagata, which is one-pointedness, and that would be absorption, concentration, the first jhana. Uh-huh. So, sukha and dukkha 
Sukha. Yeah, sukha and dukkha is like you have to get up and take a shower, right? Dukkha? Sukha is, I mean, dukkha is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, um, so that's like the middle of, like, that's how you, when you're okay with it, all of it? No, that would be equanimity, okay. which is upeka, different. Uh, here's the, the trick between vipassana jhana and metta jhana. Metta jhana is limited to the third jhana. We're talking about the commentary level, not the canonical level. Because in metta there's always an intention for something. And in equanimity there's no intention, it's perfect balance. So metta is always intending the kindness, always radiating out the kindness toward somebody in particular or to all beings and so there's always an inclining in it so it can't be perfectly equanimous. So when you talk about um, focusing uh, jhana practice on metta you know that there's a limit to it. But it's a perfect way to go. You go into the third jhana in metta and then when you want to go into the fourth jhana you switch into vipassana practice and go into the fourth jhana. How do you switch? So you go from uh, metta to, uh, you switch techniques and go into a, an insight technique from uh, a, a metta technique. So let's say that you want to explore the first foundation of mindfulness. You go into, a, say, a technique of noticing sensation in the body. So you look for sensory clarity around sensation in the body. You might say, use a Shinzen Yang technique see her feel. So you'd go from may, all, may, um, may you be peaceful, may you be peaceful, may you be peaceful, focused on the mind state of metta and then drop into the body and, and start tracking which sense gate the, the sensory experiences that you're drawn to. And then if you wanted to add to that an exploration of the second foundation of mindfulness, Vedana or feeling tones, you'd note for sensory clarity and then you'd note for feeling tones. And then if you wanted to really make it intense, you could add the third foundation and be looking at whether uh, um, you're uh, craving, aversive, unconscious, or actually in equanimity with it, which I would, I like to do as a triple noting practice. Can you say this is within it? you doing this within the jhana state? Yes, you don't come out. You could maintain the jhana in that. Or you could also lose it and continue with the vipassana. Well, I noticed. I noticed, for instance, um, doing pool work. Uh, pool is working with somaticized emotion, that actually one of the objects of the meditation is piti because that's the energy that holds the emotion and watching the releases that it was easy to stay in say third jhana and, and be with that releasing process um, but let's go through the jhanas because we are talking about purification of mind and we are talking about absorption uh, so vitaka you place your attention vikara you sustain your attention piti arises, rapture arises sukha arises, bliss arises 
and then one-pointedness arises, ekagata. The first jhana is kind of unstable, so you bounce in and out of it, but as it coalesces, as it stabilizes, you drop into the second jhana, and you no longer need to apply or sustain your attention because it's stabilized. So then you have uh, rapture, bliss, and, and one-pointedness. But the, the, the PT is a, a coarse, energetic feeling in the body, a lot of energy in it. And so uh, when you go into the third jhana, the PT goes, and you're just in bliss and one-pointedness. Uh, Shinzen is always called this uh, the most pernicious trap in meditation, that you get into the third jhana, it's so pleasant and so blissful that you just bliss out and stay there, and you abandon any further insight practice. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, we talked about this last year, but like once you, like, people get stuck there, and then they like just want to go back there. Yeah, they, they figure out how to get there efficiently in their practice, and they just come in, and then they bliss out for an hour, and then they come out, and, they, and that's their, their practice. Even more. Um, yeah, it's certainly yeah. Yeah. yeah, not a bad problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, um, let me see. I can tell you that for two and a half years of my practice, that's what I did. Uh-huh. And uh, I would, I could drop in. I would drop into full rest, and I would go into jhana, and it would be very blissful. And I would just hang out there. And after two and a half years. Shinzen said to me, you're not making any progress, you should stop doing it. But, and I, I was simply talking to him about the nature of my practice, and from the, the reporting that I was doing to him, he was noticing that my forward insight practice had arrested itself, and so I just stopped doing it. So now I, I, I don't really have the facility just to drop in there like I did before because I haven't been focused on it. But I thought it was an interesting remark because I didn't have the perception that I wasn't making any progress. I thought it it seemed totally fine to me. Third jhana, if you're talking about a metta jhana, then the third jhana is as far as you can go. So bliss and one-pointedness with the intention to radiate that out to someone else is as far as you can go in metta jhana. And in order to proceed further, you would have to abandon metta and go into vipassana jhana. So you would let go of the bliss, you would renounce the bliss and come into equanimity and one-pointedness. And those are the four uh, embodied uh, material jhanas. There are also then four more jhanas, which are the non-material or non-embodied jhanas. The fifth one is called the sphere of infinite space, or sometimes a big mind, they call it. But the sense of the, the consciousness, the sense of awareness, becomes massively expansive, as big as the sky and you have the sense of being in this concentrated state that's huge. Uh, And then uh, the sixth jhana is called the sphere of infinite consciousness, and it's characterized by the formation of a casino for most people, which is a bright white light that seems to be right here. 
I was on a retreat up in Santa Barbara the first time I had that experience, and I thought that somebody had parked a car in front of me, and the headlights were on, shining in my eyes. And I thought, how could they possibly get a car there? And I opened my eyes, of course, there was no car. And then I closed my eyes again, and it was this bright white light. And then the seventh jhana is called um, the, the sphere of no thinness. And uh, when I was talking to Shinzen about the experience, it was like, a, in some sense, a halo of crystalline blue light that was surrounding, and there was nothing else, just that. Awareness in this, this sort of crystalline blue light and that one tended to be quite stable. And then the eighth jhana is the sphere of neither perception or non-perception, which is, my experience of it, was total blackness and just awareness, but nothing to sense. Um, and oftentimes this is misperceived as the same thing as the cessation experience, but there's no awareness in cessation whereas in the, the eighth jhana there is this awareness without anything to be aware of, if that makes sense. Um, I have never been able to do these uh, more esoteric, uh, or arrive at these more esoteric states except in long retreat practice, and then it, then it seems to be pretty ordinary there if, the, if that's the focus of the practice. But again, this is not an insight practice, this is a concentration practice. And so the, then the question is, what is the, the purpose of your practice? Are you here to have uh, psychedelic experiences, or are you here to get free? I guess that would be one way to put it. They're not. You want to have enough concentration so that you can do the uh, insight techniques. So access concentration actually would be enough. But if you could come into the first jhana and then go into Vipassana, uh, you might have an easier time with the insight technique, go into the second or the third. One of the reasons that I like the, the concentrated metta jhana practice is that you come into this very kind and peaceful place so that you can then go into the insight practice from this place of extraordinary kindness. And if it's a kindness that you hold for yourself, then in, in uh, actually being able to see your conditioning, which often we hold with very harsh judgment uh, without having brought the mind into a place of kindness first, that can be a very jagged experience. But if you bring the mind into this deeply kind place in regard to yourself, this lack of judgment, then when you go into the Vipassana practice and see these, these conditioned experiences, uh, this conditioned way that you respond to the world, it's much easier to be in there with it. I don't know. Uh-huh. Are you suggesting that in the same city, um to practice dry method before uh, going into insight? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It would be an efficient way to do it. 
10 minutes of dry metta and then go into your vipassana practice. What, we're, what I'm doing now on my, my retreats is I'm doing five days of pure metta first and then going into vipassana in this concentrated, deeply concentrated but extraordinarily kind place. And I can tell you that in doing this that the result has is, is been really different in terms of the reporting from students. The students that were sitting just the, the straight Vipassana retreat would be reporting real hardship in holding on to the experience of a lot of their conditioning. But doing the, the five days of metta beforehand, I had, on the last two retreats I had zero reports of that. It was really startling how different it was to settle into this place of really deep kindness for yourself and then go to look at the conditioning and what a contrast that was to the very harsh judgment that a lot of people experience when they really attempt to look deeply at their conditioning. Uh, I understand the role of the Still is. The jhanas were a prerequisite to, to real awakening or enlightenment. And uh, my understanding of the current kind of consensus, I mean, there's still people on different extremes, but generally speaking, the thought is that the jhanas uh, work to heighten your level of concentration. They're, they're sort of an accelerator. Right. And that the goal, while there's value to be had from the jhanas themselves, the main value is is that heightened concentration. So if you can, if you're on a retreat or you're sitting enough in your daily practice that you can access the jhanas reasonably readily, it's just what you want to do is use that to get your concentration up and then switch to whatever insight technique yeah. you're using and that you'll get some extra bang for the buck out of that. The, uh, the images you can you, you want to get to the other shore being which is being highly Hopefully, what I've been saying, or at least. Hmm? Yeah, it was just like, as far as like the higher levels, like you were talking about the ones that just have like more of an experience. Is that something that you use for insight when you're there? Um, what I noticed in in my own practice is that when I got very deeply into the insight practice, they would arise as a result of doing the insight practice, and it would be a co-commitment experience I would be in that that level of jhana but I would also be pursuing some insight practice yeah that's what I'm wondering is like you say like what's the purpose of the higher levels of jhana like, and other ones you can see like I can see like the benefits but whenever you talk about I guess say seven eight like what exactly do you see in that in those states or is there a purpose to it or is it just something that it's got a, a phrase attached to it to describe what some of the experience. Um, 
Well, I don't know if I have a good answer for that. Um, I think that it's useful to know what they are because that, that depending on how you practice it, you may have those experiences and it's useful to know that they are not the same thing as enlightenment. Uh, I guess that would be the main value that I would find in it. It's a it's a such a different experience of being in that mind that mind than it is to be in an ordinary mind. Um, and in the beginning, before you've you've had say stream entry or one of those experiences, it, you may think that you've gotten there. And so to understand that actually that isn't there. It's the seventh jhana or the eighth jhana is useful. So you're saying that beyond those jhanas there's an enlightenment later on? The enlightenment is different than that. Okay. So I think if you, if you uh, or at least the stories of the Buddha that were told that in the beginning of his practice uh, he studied with the teacher and I forget the name and that they were doing jhana practice and he got to the eighth level of jhana and was very skilled at getting at the eighth level of jhana and that that's what they were saying was enlightenment and that the Buddha's discovery was that actually that isn't it. That enlightenment is something different than that. Uh-huh. So the way that you just described it, that's kind of how I was thinking about it too. Like People who are highly concentrated are having these experiences and then reporting back and people are having this sort of like these common experiences and then we're like just sort of Labeling them, you know, five, six, seven, eight. Like, oh, that happened to me too. Mm -hmm. Is that is that kind of what you're talking about? I'm not understanding. That like <clears throat> that the genres are like they're like common experiences that people are having. So right. It's like, yeah, and I got really concentrated, and I, you know, saw the bright light. I saw that too. So we're going to call that. Right. So exactly. That is, okay. Um, you don't have to do any of that and you can still pursue insight practice you just have to have access level concentration in order to do that be concentrated enough that you can do the technique well enough to get the insight from it and, in, and that's different but we do come back to this question of do you have access level concentration so that you can do the, the insight techniques or not and how do you de then develop them. But if you're engaged in the process of developing concentration, you may notice that these other jhanic experiences happen. Uh, but, you know, it's also depending on, on, on the, the, the school of thought. The, the Uteshaniya is a very popular teacher, does not believe in metta, does not believe in concentration practice. His object of meditation is a mind state, uh, and just paying attention to the mind state is the thing that he thinks will take you to uh, liberation. And that may be true, but it's only true if you can focus on the mind state well enough to know whether it's there or not. And if you don't have a basic level of concentration, you won't be able to do that. So we're then back to, again to the question of how many retreats are you going on each year <laughs> to be able to develop a dry Vipassana practice where you don't need to do any additional concentration work. And if you're not going on two or three or four retreats a year, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to develop sufficient concentration 
and then I would be advocating that you do a wet vipassana practice. And I teach that pretty much exclusively because in our community here, people are not going on multiple retreats a year. If people are going on, say, one retreat a year, that isn't going to do it. It's not going to be enough. The, uh, your comments about the, uh, focusing just on mind state, uh, that, that's similar to, uh, sounds to me like that's similar to self-inquiry, that if you come into, if you try to do self-inquiry without any kind of capacity for concentration or having done some insight or something to right. kind of get yourself in the game, coming straight at self-inquiry cold is pretty tough call. Yeah, unless you have a naturally concentrated mind or you've done some kind of athletics where you've developed it or you've done some kind of dance where you've developed it or you've developed it somewhere, right? Um, I, with the counting practice, for instance, I, uh, every now and then somebody who competitively swam came in and they can do it immediately. They can do the highest, most complex levels of counting immediately because they've trained to do it. So you have to really look at where you're at. But I want to talk uh, momentarily about the, the last kind of uh, concentration, which is momentary concentration. When an insight, meditation, practitioner's faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, did you get that? Faith, effort, mindfulness, and wisdom have become strong and balanced. The process of meditation continues with uninterrupted Purity, thoughts, or other hindrances do not interfere with the process. At such times, each and every noting produces a strong and clear concentration on the physical or mental phenomena that is the object of meditation. This is momentary concentration aroused by moment-to-moment observation. (coughs) So, this may not seem particularly (coughs) controversial, but Mahasi's um, advocation for the momentary concentration was at one time extremely uh, controversial because the one-pointedness, the absorption, was the standard. And the idea that you could allow the mind to be drawn from one object to one object to one object to one object and momentarily concentrate on each of those experiences and that that would lead to a deeply concentrated mind was uh, hotly debated by everybody. What's interesting about this, uh, I think, to understand is the reason that this came about was because uh, Mahasi understood in this lineage at the time that if they did not provide a way for householders to practice, that Buddhism itself was in jeopardy of being lost. The British invaded Burma and they declared Buddhism a a non-religion. They tried to make it a kind of hobby experience um, through states of suppression of it. They were going to completely close down and eradicate the monasteries that had been there for millennia uh, and insert uh, Christianity and the Uh, monastics at the time realized that if they didn't engage the whole populace in the protection of this, that they would lose it. And so they developed this momentary concentration practice as a way of allowing householders to develop a deep, deep practice 
so they didn't have to come into retreat and do the, do the traditional monastic way of being in practice. So they began to teach householders how to do deep practice, and it was built around karnaka samadhi, or momentary concentration. And uh, the original descriptions of the Mahasi a teaching was to note everything, constantly noting everything. So moving hand, moving hand, moving lips, thinking, all of those things, every little thing you're constantly noting so that you have this continuous experience of being uh, present in the, in the moment. So if you like this noting practice that I teach, it's a very straight up Mahasi type practice. I tend to teach it with uh, uh, Shinzen's techniques because uh, his techniques are actually pretty easy to learn and then to do. In some sense, when you begin uh, a, a Mahasi technique, you're noting where your attention is and then you're noting the inclination of your attention to move to the next object which you can detect pretty easily when you, when you practice it. Uh-huh. Is there danger with the moment-to-moment to cultivate a wandering mind? Well, <coughs> you're, in, you're not attempting to control where your awareness goes. You're simply monitoring. So in some sense, it takes you out of consciousness of the sensing experience into awareness of consciousness. That's the shift that will happen, and that's actually very useful. Uh, another way to describe it is you come out of self into no self and back and forth. So you have the object that can be sensed, you have the capacity to sense it when they meet, a consciousness of that sensing experience arises which awareness knows. And when the object of meditation is no longer, the object of sensing is no longer in contact with the capacity to sense, the consciousness of that sensing experience ends and awareness knows that. So rather than being caught up in consciousness, you move into awareness, which is constantly watching where your attention goes. So a wandering mind would mean that you're actually caught up in consciousness and you lose awareness of what's happening. Is that making sense? So it's these momentary uh, experiences where you're highly concentrated on what the experience is, watching from awareness that we're, that this a technique of momentary concentration is meant to be, and it's highly useful for insight practice. Had enough, everybody? <laughs> Shall we just practice now? <laughs> we have gabbed a long time, so the the period of practice today is going to be on the short side. Um, and why don't we just do some straight-up uh, concentration practice? What do you think? We've been talking about it. This is deepening your practice. 
So I'm always advocating ways to deepening your practice. Um, I've just started a, an intensive uh, on yesterday, but if you wanted to still come to it and you were willing to start next in two Sundays, that would be okay. You wouldn't have missed too much. Um, it's called The Meaningful Life, and it's a relational mindfulness class where we really examine ways to practice meditation to improve relationships. It's focused on John Bowlby's attachment theory, so determining what your conditioning has wrought in terms of your attachment strategy, and then looking at ways that it might be useful to shift it if, if your conditioning has put you at a disadvantage in terms of relationship. It's an intensive, so two classes a month on uh, the second and fourth Sunday. You have two mentoring sessions a month, so 30-minute one-on-one Skype sessions with a meditation mentor, six mornings a week of guided meditation, um, and that runs for nine months. So it'll end in June. Six mornings a week um, via Skype? No, it's a, a conference call, live conference call. Anyway, it's still up on the ATS website for a little bit longer, and then it'll come down. And if if you don't engage it pretty quickly, then it'll be too late. It's a closed class, so you can't just drop into it. Um, there's a retreat coming up, a fall retreat. There's a flyer up there for that. You can see a bunch of different flyers up there for different events coming up. Take a look at those. Um, I think that it's useful to go on retreat, at least one retreat a year, The next one that I'm doing is in December, so December 26th to January 8th at La Casa de Maria up in Montecito. We'll be doing a Metta Vipassana retreat, which means the first five days of the retreat will be exclusively focused on Metta practice, and then we'll go into uh, Vipassana. It's a really good way to practice. I am an ardent supporter of meditation centers. One of the things about um, the meditation path is it can sometimes be difficult and it's important to have people support you on the path. And what better place to meet them than in a meditation center? Um, I work with people all over the country and uh, the biggest complaint for most people who don't live near a big city is that there are no meditation centers. And so there are Dharma orphans out there in the hinterlands. Um, you know, you get into trouble with meditation or something comes up in meditation and you want to describe this process to somebody and if they don't meditate, they really are not going to have much of a way to help you or relate to to you in it. So having a place to come to is really useful and speeds the practice along. I can assure you that even though we've been here for a long time, that the finances of a meditation center are quite precarious and so each of these, each time you come, this practice of dana, this practice of generosity that you engage in is uh, vitally important to keep the lights on and the doors open. The suggested dana here is $15, but really the practice of dana is done for yourself and you need to be giving at a meaningful level. If $15 is a meaningful level of giving, then do that. If it's not enough, give more. If it's too much, give less. If, you, if you're not resourced and you can't do it, then we as a community will happily afford the space for you. But really be engaged in your own uh, practice of generosity. We take cash and checks uh, and uh, credit cards. 
Uh, if you would also be so kind as to put the chairs back and the cushions away, that's appreciated, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.